Tammy, how are you? Doing well. How are you? I'm good. This is a big day for you. It is. You're launching <laughs> your first podcast and your first episode. Are you excited? I am. Uh, what's the name of the podcast? It's the Hoarding Solution Podcast. And I'm excited to finally be launching. <laughs> And how long have you been in the pre-launch phase for this podcast? Well, it's been in my brain for a while, but I would say pre-launch. I did record episodes, but then I kind of stalled. And so I would say it's been about the last five months or so where it's like, okay, you need to move this along a little further. You need to get it out of your head onto paper out into the world. So um, today is a special day for me. Today would have been my brother's 45th birthday. And so um, I have learned that he has a lot of things to say too about hoarding. <laughs> if he were here, there are things he would say. And so it kind of became, oh, well, how cool would it be to release something like this on his birthday. So that's kind of how that whole thing came about. So. So why, what made you get into the realm and the industry of hoarding and trying to help bring solutions around that? It's kind of interesting to me how many people I talk with who kind of stumbled into business or stumbled into what they're going to do. And I was one of those people. I, I saw housing issues. I saw lack of housing, lack of affordable housing in my area. And I really started to think about, well, I've always liked houses. You know, is there something I could do in that realm? And <clears throat> as I went through this business process, I had a business mentor say to me, well, what else, what do you know about? Like, what else do you know about around housing? And I mentioned that I knew about hoarding and I, I was somewhat raised in that environment. And so I understood it from a personal perspective that it's really difficult. And the mentor is like, well, I wish I knew you a couple of years ago when I was going through this with my aunt. And I was like, for me at that moment, it was like, wow, really? Like I've met you, you're like a high end, person, you know, like you wouldn't think that person would know about what hoarding is, you know, it, it, even in my own perception at that time, like they didn't fit that profile that I had of someone who would know about what I'm talking about. And anyway, they asked about, you know, have you seen those shows? And I'm like, yes, I have seen those shows and I tend to not watch them. They're a bit triggering, you know, <laughs> uh, but I am familiar with them. And so it kind of just evolved from that into, okay, well, what else do you know about this? And who else knows about this? And who's talking about it? And is there something you could do to help people understand this better? And so um, that's kind of where the whole thing started. Um, it never occurred to me when I was younger that I would ever try to talk about this publicly or, um, do anything about it. And, but yet here I am, it's taken a lot of work to get here, uh, you know, to prepare yourself to 
tell your difficult story, but I'm finding that everywhere I go, someone can relate to it in some way. And that has helped me look at it, I think in a broader way, but also bring it to back to like how many people are actually impacted by it and may not know it. And may not know it. And you grew up in a, in an environment of hoarding. And so it was something that you knew firsthand, but as you moved into your you know, your coaching and your consulting and your educational work around this issue. Um, you, you say strongly to come at it from, you know, knowledge and compassion that you have to have compassion around this. Did you always have compassion around this issue or was that something that you had to grow into? I would say that I have had to grow into the idea that the person that hoards has some sort of injury um, mentally, generally, that is going on, some sort of trauma that they've experienced. And it initially, I would say I had compassion for the kids and the people in those situations who were forced to live that way. And I feel like I've always had the compassion for the, the people that don't understand why they're in it and don't have a way to get out. And that I feel like it was always there, but I also kind of hid it because that impaired my ability to connect with the people who actually had the hoarding issue. And I had to kind of, I had to step back and, even like with my own parents and say, okay, how can I find compassion for this person given the circumstances that I was raised in? And when I stop and I look back on events that shaped them, it helps me go, oh, okay, now I see where that is the reason why hoarding was maybe their response to traumatic things in their lives. And so, um, in the work I have done now, uh, every person I've ever worked with has a story of some something. And in general, they didn't, there was a trigger and there was something tra traumatic that happened and that's what triggered that behavior. And that is what has helped me go, oh, every person has a story that needs to be heard. Mm. And if and it's part of why forced cleanouts are very harmful and don't work because in general that person isn't ready um to to tear away all the things that they are using to protect themselves and in some ways now i feel somewhat blessed and burdened that i can see the picture you know i can see the family members i can see the person with the issue I can see the peripheral people that want to help and see the problem, but are, are are uncertain how to approach it without really making that person angry. Right. Because there's a component that of guilt, there's a component of overstepping um, mm -hmm. and the peripheral family members, they're not sure if what they're doing is, correct but they're not seeing like when you said that when you take a step back and you look at 
the events in the life before the hoarding that shaped them and that made mm-hmm. that that hoarding became um kind of a a self-medicated approach for them um to deal with that you're also allowing those peripherals those family members to look at a more tangible problem or a root cause that mm-hmm. maybe helps them do you think that that helps them separate a little bit of the emotion to be able to look at it differently? Yes, I think it helps if you are able to basically separate the behavior from the person. And that can be hard to do, I think, especially if you have been forced into that situation for some reason. And for for most of the people like myself who have found a way to escape you you are not thinking about how can i come back and help the situation and so you you leave and you go on with your life or you try to and then at some point you're kind of pulled back in and someone will say well you're you're the daughter you should fix this um you're the family member you should come back over here and deal with it and you're like Mm, how am I supposed to do that? I couldn't do it then. They didn't listen then. Um, they aren't listening to me now because sometimes you've already tried to intervene or say, I'm concerned about you, mom or dad or neighbor or friend. And basically everything is shoved away. We don't want to talk about it. We don't have a problem. And so denial is the big, <laughs> the big common denominator in there um, between just about every addictive or, you know, pathological behavior in general, we don't want to say we have a problem in the beginning. And if someone brings it to our attention, it's painful to to be told, you know, you probably should, you know, be able to cook on your kitchen counter. You probably should be able to sleep on your bed. You know, the shower isn't meant for newspapers. Um, And so having some of those conversations can be very, difficult. Um, But the other piece of that is, I find it's an unfair expectation that the family members should come back and solve this mental health issue. (laughs) They're not mental health providers. What's your approach when somebody brings you in? What's that first approach that you have? So in general, if it's a person that has a hoarding issue and they do contact me and say, hey, I'm at the point where I have a problem. Can you help me? And initially, I I try to just listen, like, tell me what is going on and what point are you at? Um, a big point can be, are you the homeowner or are you a renter? Because that can diverge into who has leverage, who's complaining about your place. Um, who do we need to satisfy for you to be able to remain in your home, hopefully, if you can. Um, if it's a family member, um, it's it's slightly different because they're the one with the concern. And just because you have a concern doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be able to solve it um, for that person. Um, there is a lot of shame, as you mentioned, and just pain around if you grew up in it, 
And if you haven't dealt with that in some way, um, in a positive way, and then someone comes to you and says, you need to go fix this now, how do you, how do you manage that? So for me, when it's the family member, my questions are around, how are you? <laughs> you know, what's your self-care looking like? What is your expectation that you're going to be able to help with? What is your expectation that I will be able to help with? Because there's so many layers to it that it's not a simple solution. And I think most people want it fixed like that. And if, if you look at, well, how many years did it take to get to the point that there are rodents now? How many years did it take for the, the disrepair to get really bad, you know, and you can't in general fix it at the snap of a finger. And so my approach is basically to listen and figure out exactly what, what it is. And if it's the person that's hoarding, they're generally going to tell me there was a divorce. There was a death. They lost a pet. They had to move. They lost a job. There's something that usually the hoarding might've been at like a, a level they could maintain, but then something triggers it. And now it's, it's at a point where they can't maintain it. And most people need to be heard. And once you stop and you start to stop telling them, we're going to clean this up, we're going to back up a truck, we are going to um, recycle everything you own. People don't realize what they're saying to that other person, even though you might look around and say, this is a disaster. You have to step back and say, okay, if someone came into my house and talked to me that way, how would I feel? Is that effective? Is it working? Would I be mad? And I think you just have to step back a little bit and and ask some of those questions and then actually listen because I've had a lot of people say to me, no one's listening to me. No one's listening to what I need or what I want. The other piece of that coin is sometimes you can't honor what they want. I mean, if your parent is to the point where Mobility wise, they can't navigate. And every time they move, they're hitting a, a stack of boxes that falls over. Now you have avalanche, now you have fall risk, which is a huge deal for older people as they're wanting to age in place and wanting to be in their homes. But my experience was I tried to get, initially I tried to get my brother out of that situation and he was wheelchair bound and that didn't, wasn't that effective. Later, it was my dad who had mobility issues, and it wasn't until he basically fell, couldn't get up, and then an ambulance came and got him out of there. But the, the thing is, is that like a, a protective services had been involved for years. They already knew kind of that whole situation. But if they walked, when they walked in, and my dad would say, I, I'm fine. I want to live here. And they considered him competent. They let you be until it got to the point where he was basically laying on the floor. And so this for me is where it gets really personal because most people would be like, are you kidding me? Your dad's in the hospital. And I'm like, thank you, Lord. Someone else saw it. Someone else 
pass to say, this is not okay. And that is where he was able to go from the hospital. Again, I could talk about that whole experience to the nursing facility. And he lived there for three more, lived for three more years before he died. There was not a day that went by that he did not say, I want to go home. And so he was in a, in a better environment. He could, he was getting his meals. He was getting his food. He was getting um, medication. People could stop and visit him. And from my perspective, that was a, an improvement over sitting in a recliner in a space where you could bar barely move from the kitchen to the bathroom. And then you have all the stuff that if you hit it, it falls. And, but from his perspective, it was always, I want to go home. I get that nobody really wants to spend their time in a facility, but for me, when I got that call, it was relief because there, some of that burden, some of that expectation that I should solve the problem had been removed. And that is where a lot of people think that at some, I should have come in and cleaned the house, right? I should have been the caregiver. I should have done all these things. But we tried all those things at various points and no one would say, yes, let's let that happen. So um, that is the challenge that not, my story is what I experienced, but there are an estimated 15 million people in the US that have a hoarding problem. And if just half of those people have kids, you know, you've got 7 million kids trying to figure out what to do. And well, I'll stop in case you have other questions, I do, <laughs> but I, <laughs> I do around those, around those kids, because I think naturally you do. Um, and I'm, I'm, I would be interested on the data between sons and daughters on mm. that, how much pressure is put on the children on, I should be the one that solves this problem and I should be the one that takes care of this. Um, but there's so much, they're doing what they think is right. And then you find out that approach might not have been correct. How do you walk someone through that after, after it's already been done and they're having to live Maybe there's a fractured relationship now. Is part of your services and the offerings and the teachings that you do um, repairing that that fracture first? So I look at it like, <clears throat> so first I will say hoarding fractures almost all relationships that I have encountered in some way. And I think that you have to look at what is your focus at that particular moment, because you could have a very good relationship with your, I'll say your parent, and then you may be in a position where you're forced to make a decision on their behalf. And that can destroy any relationship that you have had with them because now you're the adversary. Now you're taking negative action against them. So 
Um, I think you have to be prepared that no matter what action you take, particularly as the adult kid, that they aren't going to be happy with you. Um, but I can say that it's possible to choose relationship over stuff if it's not in an emergent crisis. So you can choose to call your parent or not. Um, you can choose to visit them, but maybe you see them at a restaurant or a, a neighbor's house or a friend's, or maybe you visit the property, but you're outside. Um, and so you can find ways as the kid, what are my boundaries? What are my limits on what I can give? And, um, you know, it comes up in some of the groups that I'm in, you know, I can't let my people have kids. They're like, I can't take my grandkids, my kids to see their grandma in that house. And grandma doesn't understand why. Well, you a can't get in the house or B, if you could, where would your two year old play? There's no room on the floor. And even if there was, would you want your kid in that environment? And so that's where some of that broken relationship happens. And so, um, I mean, one way around that is the person comes to your house. Um, you meet at the playground. You um, you can find ways to connect away from the stuff. And some people don't even talk about it because if you bring it up, you can't. It's like you you can't talk about it. It's like you can't even raise the issue if you want to have the relationship. But if you do raise it, you can say things like, you know, you know, Pam, I'm worried about your safety because I see that you can't open your, um, you can't open your door safely. And if emergency folks needed to get in there, they, they wouldn't be able to get in, you know, and we know that you, you know, just had a surgery or whatever, and you might need EMS folks to get in there, but you, you can't, they can't get in. And in general, that person, that horde is not generally worried about their safety in any way. Um, so you have to kind of look at it from who else is impacted. Um, is it hard for EMS? Would, if there was a fire, could firefighters get in and out? Um, many people cry when you tell them that the reason their grandkid isn't coming over is because there's too much stuff. And there's this disconnect between what the problem is and how to fix it. And I think you just have to be careful what you say and you have to look at from your perspective, what is your objective? Um, I personally don't have kids. And so for many years I would go visit and I would sit on the stool in the very entrance because that's all the room there was at that point. Um, and, but then I realized if you have respiratory issues, um, if you have anything like that and you're sitting in an environment where there's dust or mold or mite or pets, you are, could potentially be harming yourself if you have respiratory or health issues. And in general, there's, I have found that you should put yourself aside. There's an expectation that you should just do whatever you can to help. and from society and from neighbors and from people who have said to me, well, you know, the property has been like this for 20 years, 30 years. Great. And so how is it I am supposed to fix it? 
if it's been that way for this long, how is it you expect that me, that I'm going to walk in here and fix it? And so for me, there's that education piece for family members, for neighbors, for anybody who is trying to approach it. But for me, the first thing you have to look at is these are all people, these are all humans, and what's going on with the human. Because once you start figuring out what's happening with the human, then you can start figuring out why is this their response? Why is this what they're doing? And the it's truth human. is, it's human first, and then you can deal with the stuff. The stuff. And what we normally see is the stuff. We talk about the stuff. We talk about how it's impacting their life and how it's negative and how the property values this. And we're, that's all. That's what we focus on. We aren't over here going, okay, but why? Why is this? Why is this happening? How can we address the needs of the person? And often they don't have running water. They may not have power. Uh, they may have not been to the doctor. Their fridge is probably full of rotten food. So where do they get the good food? You know, where do they store their good food? Um, and so there's just all these like quality of life things that are happening for the person themselves, not to mention kids, family members, pets, um, you know, people get really upset about 97 cats or 200 dogs or whatever. I get that. It's terrible living conditions. But people forget that kids are living in that. Kids are living in those similar conditions. And what are we doing about them? And if you, even if you go to report something, that entity doesn't necessarily know what they're looking at when it comes to hoarding. They don't know how to intervene. They don't have a resource. Um, and so part of the solution is looking at the fact that in general, hoarding has underlying mental health components. And if you look at it from that perspective, you can start to see, okay, if this was any other mental health situation, what would we do? And bring some of that into looking at hoarding and not just focusing on the stuff, the stuff, the stuff, the stuff. Um, and right now that is the approach across the board. Yes. The approach. So even the entity, the kids, if I can just clear out the stuff. Then it'll be okay. Then not only will the environment physically in itself get better, but now we have room to talk and communicate and adapt new behaviors, I mm -hmm. think is the, is the thought process. Do you find that it's more effective if they're bringing in a third party like yourself? into this situation? Is it more effective than just family member to family member, friend to friend, neighbor to neighbor, um, entity to a uh, homeowner, but someone that's coming in from this approach that's a third party? There, there, it does seem that it is more effective if there is that third party and it, and third party isn't necessarily me. Sometimes it is that out, it, it's an outside force that is causing this shift. Um, be it a landlord or, you know, an inspection, they felt an inspection, or maybe the city or county is getting complaints or the homeowners. Um, sometimes there's that third party piece that is what forces the change. But in general, there's already a lot of friction around the issue in the family. And so if you are the 
father, you know, the son-in-law and you're coming in here telling mom and you know, your wife's mom, Hey mom, we got to fix this. She's gonna be like, well, who are you? And you just got married. And you know, so there's a lot of that friction. If you can find someone that is more neutral and does not have that, um, the emotional connection already in there, it can allow you almost to mediate between the parties. Like, this is what you want. This is what you want. Can we meet somewhere in the middle? And some people have a good luck with professional organizers who are familiar with hoarding. Um, there are some, not all are willing to work in that environment, which I get, um, but not everyone knows what they're walking into either in a hoarding situation. So I find that, um, and there are uh, methods of, you know, getting everyone to the table basically and saying, okay, here's the issue. And the person that hoards gets to share their perspective, which can be challenging if that perspective is very skewed from reality. And, but the important thing is to have that conversation if you possibly can. So for me, for example, if you said, hey, we'd like to have this conversation. Could we all meet for, and consult on this? Yes. Um, and here, and we want everyone's perspective from that. And there are places where you can, they'll pull in the landlord, the family member, the a mental health person, uh, maybe some other therapist, maybe clergy or someone from the church. And so you can kind of, I would almost call it an intervention, but like it's an agreed upon <laughs> intervention. And the other piece of that is doing that in more of a neutral location, not a place where they will feel attacked or where you will be the one in charge type of thing. Um, in general, I have met people like at a coffee shop, I've met at their property. Um, eventually, I think I see a need for an office where we could actually meet and consult and do that potentially. But online things are very great these days. And I know in our current environment, that's kind of what we're limited to. Right. But there's, you can get, we'll talk through a lot of things just in a face-to-face, -face, something like this, or a Zoom call or something where you can actually all interact together. But the hardest part is that person that hoards is generally not ready to deal with their issue. If they have not initiated the call or the conversation or the request for help, you're gonna have an uphill battle. And that is the, the one of the biggest challenges that I keep coming back to is, how do you convince someone they have a problem when they don't think they have a problem? How does that, how do we do that for anyone that we see that is struggling and is in denial, basically? Um, I think you have to start with where are they at? What's the human, what's that human connecting point? And often if you have, say you have a neighbor, right? And you're concerned about them and you start talking to them kind of have that conversation, you know, don't just jump over the fence and say, I'm backing up a truck tomorrow. <laughs> Try to get to have a conversation and it may or may not be successful, but at least you're attempting that from a human perspective. Um, the other point, I mean, there's different types of hoarding. There's different reasons why, 
but some of the most challenging is when someone is starting to cognitively decline and maybe they didn't live that way before and now they are and you are trying to intervene but they don't still don't think they have a problem and so how do you intervene with that what do you do and so i think there just needs to be more conversations about what are you actually dealing with yeah and i think that what you're looking at in these conversations is you have on one hand um someone that this was gradual for them and mm -hmm. they have accepted this new way this environment that they find themselves in they've they've accepted it at different levels so mm -hmm. they've grown into it themselves but then you have those peripheral or those outside that they're seeing the end result of the all mm -hmm. of that acceptance throughout all of those miniature acceptance of i need to keep this Mm -hmm. milk jug because I might need it or I need to keep this newspaper because I'm going to look at it. And it was those little bit of acceptance that built up that they've gotten used to. But then you have family, friends, neighbors, or, or what have you that come in and they're just hit with the, with the end result. And so right. they're, they're on high alert and they're like, we have to fix this today. And it goes back to what you said before that it took a slow process to get there. It's mm -hmm. not going to be a fast process to back out of that. So my question to you is what can family members do early on? What are some of the early intervention or, or preventative intervention, if you will, that they could exercise or that they could pick. Of course, this isn't going to help if you're a four-year-old, if you're a right. But for those situations where it could help, um, and maybe even like right now, we are in a very weird time and a very strange time. And I think I'm curious if when you, if one of the triggers to start stockpiling and start keeping things close is a trigger of things being ripped away from you or scarcity that's happening. So those are my two questions. A, what are some early prevention for family members if they start seeing signs? What can they do? And then second, us as individuals, what can we do if we start getting that compulsion to keep rather than so for early intervention, early, well, early intervention or early mitigation, I would say that especially if you live near your family or your aging folks that you see, um, if you start going to their home um, and you start seeing the piles building up or you know they used to... Um, sweep their floor every day and now you can tell they haven't swept it in who knows how long um or i would say one of the things is the around the home the maintenance piece like are they keeping up on their maintenance but also what's going on with their health because if your mobility becomes limited that could be a, a trigger as to why things get out of control and so i think you want to be keyed into what's going on with that person and what and is it something that is a health issue that's causing this, like physical, or is it a mental situation? Um, 
did someone pass away recently? Um, the, what's going on with them and kind of checking in with where, where they're at um, and being aware of it, which again, if you have grown up in that in any kind of that traumatic situation, maybe it was manageable and now it's bad. Um, it can be hard to try to have a conversation about what's going on. Um, but if you are just seeing it start to develop, you would want to make sure that their, their needs are being met. And, and if you start to see them doing strange things, like all of a sudden they can't use their tub because now all their canning jars are now all stacked in the only bathtub they have, you could be asking, you know, why, why are these things in here? Um, do we need to look at getting you a shower that works better? You know, um, what, kind of having those earlier conversations before it gets to the point that now they can't use their bathroom at all. And there's a bucket in the hall, which, I mean, it happens where people get to that point. And so, but I think you can be polite and respectful and still curious as to what's going on with that person. Um, is the key component in asking them, because of course, you, if they're just starting the behavior, there might already be some defensiveness about it because they mm -hmm. haven't gotten into full acceptance. So they're going through that. Um, is the key component to having a successful inquisitive conversation to get maybe to an underlying issue, listening and not just listening to what they're saying to you. So, hey, do we need to get you a cabinet for the canning jars? Do we need to get you a new bathroom? Maybe you want a new tub. Um, and they're like, no, 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 it's fine. I'm gonna deal with that tomorrow. I'm gonna do that later. Do you have, I mean, what is that underlying that you're looking for? Well, one is, I would say definitely the piece about, um, I'll get to that later because often later never comes and later just continues to build. And that's how it continues to be an issue. And so um, what I ha have found sometimes, like if they tell you that, you know, I, I get a new cupboard, but I can't get it here. Well, if you know what they're looking for, you might just want to show up with the shelves here. I brought you X, Y, Z. I found it at, wherever it's, it's the color you wanted. It's three shelves. It'll fit right over here. Um, I think that you can show that you care. Sometimes you need to listen to hear, to hear what they're saying, but um, also showing that you are listening to what their needs are. They may or may not let you bring that cupboard in, but it, again, if they're not full fledged yet and they're they're still open, then you might have some success with that. Um, the other thing is, well, I tend to want to overhelp, which I don't recommend either. But you could, you know, say if they say, "Yeah, I'd like to get one of those new walk-in tubs or whatever," you could research that, get a brochure maybe ask them, you know, could we have someone come in and, and do the assessment to figure out, you know, what it would cost to get you this tub. Um, and taking, I think, some proactive steps um, to help them see that you do care about their well-being, that you're concerned about them. Um, not necessarily that 
the canning jars are the problem, but the fact that they can't take a bath is actually what the problem is. And um, some people have a fear of falling down in the tub. And so if you put a bunch of stuff in the tub, then now you don't have to deal with it, right? That That's kind of the thinking. Well, if I just put this in here, then no one's going to tell me I need to take a bath. Well, hopefully you're still doing that on your own. No one needs to tell you you need to do that. But if you're totally blocking, you're blocking everything by doing that. You know, you're blocking social connections by filling up your space. You're blocking feeling clean. You're blocking um, a place to cook. You're blocking out so much positive by gathering to you. And so you have to look at how can you, maybe you need to bring them a meal. Maybe you need to ask them, you know, can they use their microwave? Maybe you need to just be really aware of what is going on with that person. And it's not always older folks. Um, I've seen people with long-term illness have successful careers. They did their things. Um, now they're stuck at home. Now their mobility is impaired and things fall on the floor and they just stay there because they can't reach them or it's too painful. Um, and so I think being aware of what is going on in your friends and people's lives also, because you might come across someone who's like, I would love it if someone come and clean my house, you know, and that could be a gift that you could give them. And you might walk in and go, alrighty, this is a little bit more than cleaning. But if you can come in with a little less judgment, a little more like, I get why it's this way, you're going to have a lot more leeway, I think, in what you can say and do. Well, I would also really suggest that if you're, if, if someone is starting to see a difference in behavior and environment and housekeeping in a loved one that, and they're not sure of the early on, cause maybe something traumatic happened or maybe mm -hmm. it could be um, health issues and they just can't keep up with it. And they're, they're too proud to ask for help or what. Right. I think that it would be highly beneficial to bring someone like you in to to kind of assess and see is it are we dealing with an emotional traumatic mm -hmm. or are we dealing with immobility and health right and and that's actually a really good point because what i have found mobility health wise that the clients i have worked with they're often desperate for help desperate to have somebody come in there and say, look, I didn't live this way. I don't want to live this way. I can't handle it. My spouse is busy. And you know, and, and it could be that it's not hoarding. It could be if you hired a housekeeper for two hours a week, it would help. It would mitigate so much, especially if it's in that mobility aspect. Part of the challenge is even paying someone to come in and do that. Um, People can be on very tight budgets. People can be very, the people who need it the most can like afford it the least type of thing. And it's a challenge across the country. I'm speaking of the U.S., but it's not only in the U.S. that this is happening, but there's a lack of funds to deal with it. And mm -hmm. so um, that's for me is partially where the mental health piece comes in is we have funds for other mental health things, we need to look at how are we funding this piece of mental health? You know, how are we right. helping people stay housed, basically? Um, 
because I, I, I feel like if, if they're, if this is how they're coping with the mental health, the approach to that, they're not going to be ready to go jump into a therapist's office and sit right. on the couch. And just, so it's got to be a different, a different approach. Um, I'm curious, especially right now when we're in weirdness, um, I'm sure <laughs> someone out there is starting to feel a little bit of anxiety around the scarcity of stuff. Mm -hmm. So how, what advice can you give to someone that might be dealing with the anxiety themselves of, am I going to have enough? And what, what can they do right now to practice, um, not letting that kind of spiral? So I will say that it is an anxiety producing time for people for a number of reasons. I mean, as far as your pay, or if you have a business, are you shifting how you're doing business? Um, and so for many people, there isn't money for them to stock up on stuff. And so they are in general going to the store once a week to get whatever their weekly needs are. Um, and so for that person, that can be very scary to go in, in and go, there is no, there is no bananas. There is no toilet paper the big thing of the day. <laughs> um, there's no um, orange juice. There's no milk for my whatever. And so <clears throat> I think so, in some of those cases, you need to look at alternative options. Like maybe, maybe you normally would buy, you know, a gallon of milk and maybe that's out, but maybe you could look and see if there's some canned milk that you could bring. So, or boxed milk, familiar with that, um, that, may or may not be something you normally use, but you may have to substitute something in a pinch. Um, the other thing is evaluate what you already have. So if you are going to the store and you're like, I wonder if I need, you know, um, do I need toothpaste? For me, this is something I'm like, did I get, do I have enough toothpaste? Um, you can go look and say, oh, well, I have three tubes of that. And we if all I go to the, that. I, right. I, 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 you, everyone has that one certain stockpile. They're like, every time I go to the store, I buy this and I don't know why. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and so if you are at a place now where then you go to the store, you're like, oh, look, that's a good sale. Great. It could be a good sale, but do I need it? Do I need this right now? And, um, I've done it too. Like, oh, look, you know, there's 9,000 washcloths for two bucks. I, what? How many washcloths do I already have? It's like me here. How many washcloths do I seriously need? And is this something I would give as a gift? Probably not. Right. Um, and so I think it's in some of it is asking yourself those questions like, do I need it? Do I want it? Do I already have 19 of these? Um, or, or if I get this, what am I getting rid of? That's a good one too. And then remembering, uh, I like your first point. Remember that there are alternatives mm -hmm. there. You will be able to find an alternative for that item that you're so concerned will disappear or you won't be able to get your hands on. Yes. And sometimes maybe it's like, well, I'm not saying this always happens for me, but sometimes I'm like, well, apparently I didn't need that today because what I wanted isn't here. The alternative is out. Okay. Apparently I'm just not getting that today. 
And I mean, right now that can be a little scary because at least personally, I'm like, I'm trying to like make my, if I'm leaving, I'm making my trip count. Like I'm going to the store and I'm getting my stuff and I'm coming home because I'm trying to not be out in this current environment. Not because I'm just because I think if I don't need to be out there, why should I be? Right. That's just kind of how I, I look at it. Um, but I think it's important to check in with where you are kind of like a grounding exercise in purchasing. <laughs> like, do I need it or do I not need it? And if I don't need it, don't get it. And those, those kids, those adult kids that maybe grew up in this environment, it's not bad to just practice exercise. Cause I feel like some kids go to the other extreme opposite of everything has to be clean and pristine and everything else, but you still need to practice those, those questions. I think that it helps you find a balance. Would you agree with that? Like, do I need to wash the baseboards again this week? Like, right. Do like, I really need, <laughs> do I, does, is it necessary for my entire fridge to be clean before I go grocery shopping? Right. Or is it, I could just clean up that spill that happened and that's good enough. And I wipe it off and it's good. Um, and I, don't and I think to redo the whole floor. Right. Yeah. Or the whole room doesn't have to be clean. You can be like, Hey, I vacuumed the, the area rug and I washed the dog bed. You know, you don't have to be like, I'm going to wipe down every single wall, all the ceilings, you know, um, in order for me to be comfortable to sit here. And right. I think you're right because there is this continuum of you, we either live in a pristine environment or it's hell and, right. and with clutter and chaos. And the truth is, is for most of us, we're kind of in the middle. Most of us have a little stack of mail. Most of us need to fold some laundry. You know, the kids' toys aren't probably all in their bin. Um, and, and we beat ourselves up for it because we don't, we don't want to be like our parents. And the, the point I would make about that is if you're aware that that's a, could be a problem, that's like your first step. You're aware that this could become a problem. And if you aren't living in that awareness, then that's where I see those kids move into hoarding themselves or, um, and they're also scared for their kids. Like my kid is hoarding all my, you know, every single cereal box. They will not let me throw it away. I mean, that could be concerning. Why? What is going on with this kid that they want to keep all the cereal boxes? I mean, are they not getting fed at preschool? You know, is there something going on that's causing that behavior? And I mean, I, kids go through different phases and they go, go through those things. But um, there's that valid fear that, OK, well, maybe it skipped me. But now is it in my kid? And, then, and now there are parents that are dealing with their parents hoarded, they don't, their kids do. And their kid might be having a problem somewhere now in their apartment or something like that. So now that per that person is having to deal with it on both sides. And yeah. so I just think that you can remind yourself that you, especially 
well, one of my messages now for youth living in the horde, I call hashtag Y-L-I-T-H, Y-L-I-T-H is find what you can do for you right now in that situation. And, you know, if you have your own room, can you tell them none of their crap's coming in? I did it. I'm grateful. Um, was I probably considered sassier because of that as a teenager? Yeah. But what I found is clutter is anxiety producing for me. So having a space that was clear of it was life-saving for me. And you, and you have to do that. So I like what you were saying, the self-awareness, balance, but ask the questions. And I'm hearing a little bit of understand that you cannot control the situation. You can only inquire at the situation and chip away at it, you know, piece by piece, given the information that you're receiving back from the inquisitiveness that you're putting mm -hmm. out. Is this going to be your whole podcast? Is this everything that you're talking about? You're taking everyone through these journeys because it is, it's a deep dive into hoarding issues and how we as a community can approach this issue with compassion and awareness. So I want people to understand that, that hoarding is about trauma, unaddressed trauma. And that's what I have seen. And I think most humans are walking around with some kind of trauma that is impacting their lives. Maybe you've dealt with it. Maybe you're dealing with it. Maybe you're in therapy. Maybe you're in a support group. Maybe you're providing support. Maybe you are dealing with what's going on for you. But there's a lot of people that aren't dealing with their trauma. And sometimes they don't know how, and, or they don't think there's hope. And so for me, part of the reason I want to talk about this is because People are resilient. People survive these situations. And I want anyone who has been impacted by it in some way to feel comfortable enough to say, I want to tell my story. This is how this impacted me. And now I'm over here being a successful human. And here's my perspective on what was broken and now also maybe what we should be fixing. And so that's why I, I'm very excited actually about the first episode because um, it's Dr. Robert Garcia and he is someone that encouraged me a lot to keep going on my journey. And I didn't know in the beginning why per se that he kept encouraging me to do that. But then over the past couple of years that has come to light. And so it was like, Oh my, what? Yet another person impacted and I didn't know. And the other interesting part to me around this that I'm finding is that this is a, a veteran issue. It's a homelessness issue. It's a eviction issue. And so um, I think people need to know that it's okay to talk about it. It's okay to reach out and say, I, I don't know. John won't let me. My mom is just, I don't know. I don't know what to do. And so 
I think people need to know that there's a lot of us that are in that similar position, but that you can move through it. You can become a productive member of society. You can, I'm not saying you aren't anyway, but I just mean it feels like sometimes that is so heavy, like you can't figure out how to to take the next right. step. Right. And I, I'm excited. I'm excited about your podcast. I think it's definitely an issue that has been around for quite some time and people have tried different approaches to it. And you, you are shining a little bit of ray of hope that could illuminate the whole thing by approaching this as with the strength of stories, with the strength mm-hmm. of storytelling. I can't see how that cannot help both sides. So I'm wishing you all the best and success, even though that wish is definitely going to come true. I'm excited about your first <laughs> podcast. I've already subscribed to it. For those that would like to subscribe, you can find the Hoarding Solution podcast by Tammy Moses on anchor.fm forward slash Tammy, T-A-M-M-I dash Moses, M-O-S-E-S. Um, the link is in the uh, show notes and go and subscribe and take a listen. Tammy, thank you so much for joining the Ambry podcast today. Thank you so much for helping me and talking with me and and pushing it out there. I I really appreciate the the help and support. Oh, I'm I'm in your corner all the way. So um, happy launch day. And thank you. I can't wait to listen to the first episode. All right. Thank you so much, Jacqueline. All right. Have a good day. (laughs) You too. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. The Ambry Podcast thanks its supporters and sponsors. Without you guys, we could not keep bringing you shows like this week after week. Thank you so much. Special shout out to our co-producers, Jay Beam and T. Martin. You ladies rock. Thank you so much. If you would like to support the Ambry Podcast, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash Ambry. For as little as $2 a month, you can keep the show going and you can be a live audience member and get other perks and inside scoops so thank you guys so much and remember 100% of the proceeds for the Ambry podcast in the month of March is going to help a domestic violence victim in her fight and her struggle into her triumph so thank you guys have a great week bye